1 Peter 4, 7. This is God's word. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as the one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Lord God, do whatever work you want to do in our hearts, that you be glorified in our hearts and in our lives, and that you bless many with your gospel truths. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. Peter is writing to the church. The church of Jesus Christ isn't just a building, but a collection of people that have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A group of living stones built into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Charles Spurgeon called the church the dearest place on earth. Mark Dever calls it the gospel made visible. Body of Christ is what The Bible calls it the pillar and support of the truth, the bride of Christ. God loves and indwells Christ's bride. But through the ages, the church of Jesus Christ has had some faithfulness issues. Some of the same faithfulness issues that Israel had. She leaves her first love and gets enamored with the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. The world and the flesh and the devil subtly seduce her and she runs after other lovers. So while we could say that there are many signs of health in in the church of Christ, including a hunger for the word of God and a devotion to prayer and a renewed emphasis on a missional mindset in all of life, amongst true believers, in many ways the church has lost her way And I think that the church needs to wake up and get serious about her Christianity. Stop playing around. Stop going for comfort and ease in the path of least resistance. We have the pop culture church. I like to call it the we're cool church. I know I'm not cool. I'm I'm just trying to be who I am. Um, There's the self-centered middle of the road flesh-pleasing church that's intoxicated by pride, success, cleverness, and relevance. And that church needs to wake up. Churches left and right are rejecting the word of God in favor of the spirit of the age. I, I know you see it. You've probably felt the slide, the pull. The church of Jesus Christ 
is caving in in terms of conviction and courage. We have the answers. The question is, are we going to boldly give those answers? People want a, a style, a brand, a slap on the back more than they want Christ and Him crucified. They want happiness, not holiness. Self-help, not heaven. Someone to meet their needs rather than help a brother in need. There is a fixation in the church of Jesus Christ with style over substance. And the strategy of Satan has been suddenly woven into the very fabric of the American church, and it's ripping the heart out of the church. Peter is writing to Christians who are living in a hostile, challenging world. They are scattered, they are persecuted, they are suffering, they are believers. And he is calling them again and again to focus on truth, and to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, and to focus on holy living. You go through 1 Peter and you see those three themes again and again. Focus on the truth. All flesh is like grass. It's glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Focus on the Lord Jesus Christ who shed his blood for us, who bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might Die to sin and live to righteousness, holy living. Peter has been focusing on their salvation, their situation, and now he focuses on the second coming of Christ. From chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to 2, verse 10, he was really focused on their salvation and how that ought to drive them to, to reach the highest heights in terms of holy living. Their situation was as a witnessing community, and we see this in chapter 2, verse 11, all the way to chapter 4, verse 6. And as a witnessing community, they were to live a holy life. But now he shifts, and he's coming to near the end of, of this letter, and from chapter 4, verse 7 to chapter 5, verse 11, he is talking about the second coming of Christ, living in light of that imminent return. He's writing to people called to live as aliens and strangers in light of the second coming of Christ. This passage before us, and, and I really do want to take several weeks with it because it's really a summary passage. The New Testament has a lot of these, but it summarized the essence of following Christ. What does it mean to follow Christ? You find it all in these five verses in condensed form. What does it mean to follow Christ in light of his imminent return in the midst of sufferings of all kinds? You find it right here in this passage. Now, there's four things that are in this passage. We're only going to look at one today, but I'll give you all four now. The end is near, Peter says, so live like this. First, with a holy expectancy. That's what we'll look at today. Verse 7, a holy expectancy. Secondly, displaying a costly love. We'll look at that next week, verse 8. A costly love. And then a ready hospitality, verse 9. And lastly, engaged in godly ministry, verses 10 and 11. That's where we'll be going with this. But I'm convinced as a, a local assembly of believers, as a local church, we need to focus not only on our vertical relationship with God, but our horizontal relationship with each other. 
in the body of Christ. We're going to see no less than three one another's in this passage of Scripture. Not in the verse we're looking at today, but in the others. So much packed just in verse 7. And the first thing we see, let's just dive right in. The first thing we see in terms of how we're to live, since Christ's return is near, we should live with a sense of holy expectancy. Look at verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. That word end, the Greek word telos, it's not a temporal end, where you say the end of this service is coming, or... The end of the day is almost here. This is not a cessation. This is not a chronological end. It's the idea of a a consummation, a a goal achieved. The goal is reached. Uh, The result has been attained. There's fulfillment. The ultimate goal, culmination, conclusion, success. The, The end is at hand. It literally means it's about to arrive. It's come near. That's in the perfect tense. It's a a process that's been concluded. The next event can happen at any time. What's the next event? The return of Christ. A lot of people like to make elaborate end times charts and they go, well, no, it's far, far away. Christians at every time in every age have always thought that the return of Christ was a twinkling of an eye away. What is that? As long as it takes to blink? No. As long as it takes for light to reflect off your your pupil. Like, you can't even measure it. It's at hand. It's emphasizing the nearness of Christ's return. Jesus is coming back. And all the the elements of God's redemptive plan have, have occurred. All things are now ready for Christ to return and rule. And Peter's not thinking of earthly kings and kingdoms here. He's thinking of in terms of redemptive history. The perspective of all the previous action, the drama that's been unfolding, the story of redemption is completed. Creation, the fall, the calling of Abraham, the exodus from Egypt, the kingdom of Israel, the, the exile to Babylon and return. The birth of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven. And pouring out the Holy Spirit and establishing his church. The church had been going for about 30 years by the time Peter wrote. He's saying the curtain can literally fall at any time. Ushering in the return of Christ and the end of the age. All things are ready. The stage is set. Peter has been talking about the return of Christ. In chapter 1, verse 7, he talks about the, the revelation of Jesus Christ. at the return of Christ. And like I said, Christians have always anticipated, always believed the imminent return of Christ. The promise that he will return in the twinkling of an eye, that he can come at any moment, that we should be ready to meet our Savior. And sometimes we get so fixated on our life, or even our view of the end times, that we mistakenly act as if it's 
far, far in the future, and we kind of hope that certain things in our lives will take place before his return. How many times have I thought that? I can't even name the amount of events in life, small to great, that I thought, wow, it would be cool if, if that could happen before Jesus returns, because I'm not loving his appearing like God wants me to love his appearing. How should we live in light of Christ's imminent return? Is there some special thing we're supposed to start doing? Is Peter going to give us this secret handshake, some special recipe for godliness? Some end time strategy that's going to kick in right about now? We're going to institute the emergency plan. Contingency protocol. We're going to go to DEFCON 4. How should we live in light of Christ's return? What are you supposed to do? I love the answer. I love it. The pressure's off on this one, okay? Here it is. Live like Christians are always supposed to live. Be believers where you are. Live like Christians are called to live. In the power of the Spirit, doing things that please God, being faithful witnesses in the world. As people chosen and beloved and indwelt and sustained and empowered by God, do what God calls you to do. Remember the context of 1 Peter, especially chapters 3 and 4. Identifying with Christ in suffering. He's writing to suffering believers and he says, you continue to live as Christians are supposed to live. That's why he goes on to say, love each other. Show hospitality. And serve one another. We should live with this holy expectancy. Expecting Christ's return at any moment. And therefore, wanting to live in a way that pleases him the most. Intent on praying with expectancy that God will do what he says he will do in us and through us for his glory and our good. And it all hinges on this idea of the nearness of Christ's return. The imminence. Jesus said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Our staff, I don't know, a couple years ago came up with a balanced, biblically balanced end times perspective. I wanted to capture the heart of, of what all Christians should believe about the return of Christ. Here it is. We believe in the sudden, personal, visible, bodily, promised return of Jesus Christ. Christ's return will result in the judgment and eternal condemnation of unbelievers, as well as the judgment and the final reward of believers. Additionally, believers will live with Christ in a new heaven and a new earth for all eternity. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will reign and be worshipped in a never-ending kingdom with no more sin, no more sorrow, no more suffering. That's what we believe. That's what every Christian should believe about the return of Christ. The end of all things is at 
hand. 1 Corinthians 7 tells us the time has actually been shortened because it's nearer now than when we first believed. We live in a dying world. This should teach us to hold everything in this world very loosely. Things we're clinging on to right now are houses and cars and, and people and positions and ideas. We await the coming of Jesus. We're, we're waiting for Christ to return. He might come at any moment and it, it might seem like a long time to us. But 2,000 years is not a long time in God's economy. We're living in light of eternity. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 talks of this expectation, this, this anticipation. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, everything will be changed. The time it takes for light to reflect, refract off your pupil is the time that it will take for, for you to realize Jesus has returned. There's no advanced warning here. You know, look, I hated it when I was a kid, and my mom said, just wait till your dad gets home. It happened to me often. That was a long wait. The stress built. I know why God didn't tell us exactly when Christ is coming back. See, if we knew, if we knew, we would, we would relax. We'd go, oh, yeah, this is a long way off. It's like term paper, you know. I'll do it at the, end, at the 11th hour. I'll, 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 I'll figure it out. Big projects do. Oh, I know when it's due, so I'll, I'll, I'll get into crunch time then. Well, the other reason is because we would get so stressed out, and we would create events. We would create crazy, weird things associated with the return of Christ. We'd mess it up. He's not going to tell us. It's going to happen. It is going to happen. First Thessalonians 4 tells us there will come this great event. And by the way, Paul says, by the, I, I tell you this by the word of the Lord. This is a revelation from God. The Lord himself is going to descend from heaven with a shout. There's a tone of imminency. It's always the church's responsibility to live in light of Christ's return, the nearness of his return. Always our responsibility. James 5.8 tells us, be patient until the coming of the Lord. Strengthen your hearts, because the coming of the Lord is at hand. There it is again, imminence. It's near. It's hard to convince us, isn't it? Soon. Soon. Always on the heart of the true believer, this, the nearness of Christ. In Hebrews 10, when, when the writer is saying to believers, don't forsake the assembly of, of the believers, as some were in the habit of doing, he gets to this idea that you're supposed to encourage one another and spur one another on to love and good deeds, and all the more as you see the day, what? Drawing near. Drawing near. How much nearer are we than when these words were first written? Hebrews 12 tells us that, that, that once more that, that the created things are going to shake. The unshakable things are going to remain, but the created things are going to 
shake. A shaking is going to happen to this material world. It will unsettle many and will frighten many out of their boots. Revelation 1.3 tells us that blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and take heed for the time is near. And you know what Jesus says at the end of the Bible. In Revelation 22, verse 20, he says, yes, I am coming quickly. Quickly. Imminently. First John 2, 18 says, it's the last hour. You're like, I'm looking at my clock and uh, my watch and uh, a lot of hours have gone by in my life. Christians have always been living in the last days. Forget about your charts. Think about the imminency. Think about the, the, the nearness of Christ's return. That's what Peter's telling them. You remember when Jesus, right before, after he rose from the dead and right before he was going to ascend to the Father, they gathered together and they asked him a question. Is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom? And what does Jesus say? It's not for you to know times and epochs that the Father has fixed by his own authority. You're to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. You do that. You let me take care of the other stuff. His, his return is near. You won't believe me when I say this, but it can happen before I finish this sermon. Near. Our sensitivity to the nearness of Christ and his return would have a direct effect, Peter is saying, a proportionate effect on the fervency of our living for Jesus and the gospel. See, Christians who realize that the return of Christ can be at any moment live in a certain way, should live in a certain way. And it emphasizes the need for holiness. Peter has talked about this. Holiness is, is very unpopular amongst Christians. They don't want to seem legalistic, and they don't want to try too hard. Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand, therefore, because Christ's return is so eminent, be self-controlled and sober-minded. He had to pick those two, didn't he? The Holy Spirit had to, had to pick those two, didn't he? I don't know, two of the biggest issues for everyone, self-control and sober-mindedness. Jesus taught it really clearly that you should live responsibly in light of his return. Be dressed in readiness. You don't know the hour. Be ready. We're to practice self-control and be active in prayer. It says for the purpose of prayer. Now, Peter had set the negative example. I love Peter. He is dear to my heart because he set the negative example in a lot of ways. And then God transformed his life. 
So the guy that couldn't watch and pray in the Garden of Gethsemane is now saying, you need to pray. And what's going to get you there is a self-controlled and sober-minded life. These are aorist tense imperatives. What it, what it points to is a decisive overall act, act, attitude of your whole life. As Peter is now exhorting. These are imperatives. You're to do this. So in imperative fashion, Peter is saying, you better, you better live like this. Was he being legalistic? No, he's being biblical. He's being Holy Spirit empowered. You've got to know how the New Testament letters work. If you don't, I'll give you a crash course. There's indicatives and imperatives. Indicatives are statements of truth that are just there, and it's the way it is. Things like, things like God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because he has done this. And, and statements of what God has done, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. You have imperatives, though, that, that are commands based on the indicatives. So all the things that he has said already, how Christ himself has bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So it's not just as simple as you should be holy, you should pray, you should show hospitality, you should do this or that. It's built on the gospel. It's built on the gospel. Remember what is going on behind the scenes. There are things you can see, such as people being called to faith in Christ through the preaching of the gospel, and conversion where people come to faith in Christ, but there are also things you cannot see. Like election, God choosing beforehand. And regeneration, God doing a work in the heart so that conversion can happen. And then you see sanctification, but you can't see all of it. It's a lifelong work of God and man. So you don't see God's part of it, you see our part of it. And so you see where Peter says, be self-controlled and sober-minded. That very simply means be self-controlled and sober-minded. Be of sound mind. It's used in Mark 5, 15, of the man who was able to think clearly after being set free from demonic control. He was in his right mind. It means you're able to control your thoughts and be clear-headed. It means you have your head on straight. That's kind of something I like to say. My dad, I think, used to say it about people. And I would just, a good compliment if I say this about you is that person has their head on straight, and that's a good thing. Because if it's crooked, you know, things are out of whack, right? Having your head on straight, not dabbling in nonsense or fads. Be of sound mind. And then he says, be sober. That means to be free of any kind of spiritual or mental drunkenness. You're not fuzzy. You're not buzzed by the world. You're not clouded in your understanding, in your reasoning. Your abilities are sharp and unimpaired. Peter, how many times has he told them to say no to sinful desires? Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 4. He's repeating this as a summary. Self-controlled and sober-minded. Does that mean boring and serious? Right? Some of you think, oh, that just means you've got to be boring and serious. 
No. It means godly. It means Christ-like. Your mind is tuned to the word of God and the will of God. That's another way of saying it. You know, self-controlled and sober-minded equals governed by the word of God in your life. Where you don't just want to hear it, but you want to do it. It's the governor over everything in your life. God's word will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from God's word. You're not tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine. You're alert for the purpose of prayer. You're tethered. You're, you're anchored. Put a trampoline in our backyard three years ago. I think it was the first week, maybe the second. I look outside. I'm standing upstairs in my room, and I look down in the backyard, and there's the trampoline coming across the, the yard like a, like a tumbleweed. I'm serious. You go, no, no, no. No, really. You know the kind of winds we've had. It happened. Why? Because I didn't have it tethered. So we fixed the, the pieces and put a chain around the leg, around a tree trunk, and you know what's weird? It doesn't, it doesn't go across the yard like a tumbleweed anymore because now it's anchored. It's, it's tethered. Steadfast. You were supposed to be steadfast and immovable. It's your house built on the rock, right? Not on sand. Not just a trampoline, but the portable basketball courts in my backyard like to fall down too. And then it bends the rim. It's not good. They always fall down. Fill them with water and the wind comes, bam. You know, put rocks on it too, bam. But the one I've got now hasn't fallen. I keep telling the kids the last few days, ha, it hasn't fallen. <laughs> the, the basketball court is still up. I'm easily amused. I'm serious. When I woke up this morning, besides being excited about preaching today and seeing you, I was excited that the basketball court was still up. And I checked twice. I actually woke up when it was still dark, and I'm like, I can't see out there. I can't wait till it gets light. Because I, I filled the base with sand and water. It's just heavier, I guess. By the way, what Peter's talking about is a very practical application of, of God's truth in your life. It's just very practical. Self-controlled and sober. You're going to be anchored. You're not going to move. You're not going to crash. I like what C.S. Lewis says. He says, you can have all the right notions in your head without ever tasting in your heart the realities to which they refer. He says, a simple Bible reader and sermon hearer who was full of the Holy Spirit, will develop a far deeper acquaintance with his God and Savior than more learned men who are content with being theologically correct. The reason is that the former will deal with God regarding the practical application of truth to his life, whereas the latter will not. J.C. Ryle describes the process of being sober-minded and being strong in in faith, he says, your sense of sin becomes deeper. You know how it goes. When before you were a believer, you did things, and you're like, big deal. Not as bad as you. Then you become a believer, and little things seem huge. Because now you are aware. You're awake. Your sense of sin becomes deeper. He says, your faith, stronger. Your hope, 
brighter, your love more extensive, your spiritual mindedness more marked, you feel more of the power of godliness in your own heart, manifest more of it in your own life, you go from strength to strength, from faith to faith, from grace to grace. Writer of Hebrews says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There is a need in our lives for holiness. Peter, second letter he wrote, he says, look, everything's going to burn, and if so, what sort of people ought you to be in living lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God? The nearness of Christ's return highlights your need for holiness. And one more thing, one more thing, it, it heightens, it heightens our awareness of the necessity of prayer. Prayer. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Did you say your prayers? You know, 1 Peter 4, 7 has to do with your daily life, as you can tell. And I, I think the most significant thing that he's saying here is that because of Christ's near return and the need for holiness, it's for a purpose, and the purpose is prayer. Talking with God, depending on God, thinking straight and being alertly sober as the key for praying as God wills. Not lazy or lethargic or haphazard, but you are in shape for prayer. You have a fitness for prayer. You carefully think ahead and prepare with deliberate intent to be spiritually able and primed to pray powerfully. James, the effective prayer of a righteous man fails much. You're not vague or listless or neglectful or cold-hearted or absent-minded towards prayer. You, you don't say, I can take it or leave it when you think of prayer. You're not uncommitted to it. You're not minimalist about it. You're not indifferent. It's not an absent-minded ritual or forgotten until you face a crisis. It's not flippant. It's serious. And it's for the purpose of prayer. And literally, did you catch this? Prayers. It's in the plural. What should you be praying about? Pretty much everything. Everything. All kinds of prayer. Let me give you some examples. Praise. Praise. Glorifying God for who He is and what He does. Just like Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just like in verse 11. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's a prayer of praise. Thanks. Expressing gratitude to God. Petition, bringing needs to God. Does it ever bug you when someone says, you just, just pray about it when you share a, a thing, problem with them? You're like, I want a good answer. You, that person just told me to pray about it. Wow. They did? They told you to depend on God? And pour your heart out to God? Wow, they're, ooh, man, let's go talk to them. Philippians 4, 5, and 6 says, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. It's not selfish prayer. It's prayer that seeks God's will. Be self-controlled. Be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Prayer is really tricky. Abraham Lincoln, he had an issue. There was a civil war going on and. Both sides were reading the same Bible. As he said in his second inaugural, both sides were reading the same Bible, and both were praying to the same God, but the prayers of both could not be answered fully 
And the prayers of both were not fully answered. They're praying for, what, victory, and they both couldn't have it. How about intercession, bringing others' needs to God? I heard yesterday at our missions day that 25 million intercessors are mobilized worldwide. I want to be a part of that 25 million. Matthew 9.38 says, Beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Beg him, literally. 1 Timothy 2 tells us, Pray for everyone everywhere. You ever thought about that? You're to pray for everyone in the whole world. How about affirmation, a prayer of affirmation? You affirm biblical truth. Lord, you said this, and I believe it. Amen to it. You, you affirm promises. You affirm commands. Lord, you say that I'm to be self-controlled and sober-minded. By your Spirit, give me the strength to do that. And there's prayers of confession, admitting your sin and seeking forgiveness. See, Peter is talking about all prayers, plural. Prayers you pray alone. Prayers you pray in a group. Prayers that are long. Prayers that are short. Every kind of talking with God. Even our singing. John Calvin considered congregational songs to be sung prayers. And so a lot of us think, man, our prayer lives are so disappointing. Our prayer lives are so discouraging. Well, here's some encouragement for you. As you sing praises to God, then you're praying to God. And if you love singing to God, then you love to pray. That's encouraging. So watch and pray. We need to take this plane down for a landing here. And so let me just say this. You live with a sense of holy expectancy. It's the only way to live in Christ. It really is. This is a summary statement. And you may be suffering. You may be experiencing immense pain or unjust treatment or anything else. And God wants you to wait upon him, pray in the Spirit. The time is short. I heard yesterday that 74,000 people a day come to faith in Christ and that 3,500 churches are planted every week. Wow. God is doing things in the world. He's doing things in our hearts and he wants to use us for his glory before Christ returns. So our priority is to live like this. Now I realize that you want some next steps probably and God speaks to us as we get into the word and the Holy Spirit gives us ideas, but let me tell you how I'm going to live differently as a result, and maybe there's something there for you. The nearness of Christ's return, the imminence, I want it to be more in my mind and to shape my, my mindset, my worldview. And the only way I know to do that is to have it more on my mind by reminding myself, by being in the Word, by, by reminding myself that it is imminent. And the need for holiness really just says, You've got to decide, I've got to decide to change the way we live. Change the way we live. It's like eating less and exercising more. In 1998, I was about 25 pounds heavier than I am today. And I had to change the way I lived and exercised and ate. I was like 36 at the time, and I was, I was feeling it. But see, you won't see progress if you decide to change the way you live, you won't see progress in the next five minutes. But in the next five days, you will. And the necessity of prayer tells me that I need to go out of my way to pray more. To pray more often alone. And to pray more often with my family. And to pray more often with fellow believers. And to pray without ceasing in that all day long type of conversation with God. 
Those specific times set aside to pray and also just praying as I'm going. You know, we pray before every service on Sunday mornings. You are free to join us. We're just back over here. You say, who? Where are we at praying before the service? Come and join us. The elders and pastors, if a group of us meet right here every Friday morning at 6.30, you can come join us. There's a, lots of time, a lot of opportunities, but if my heart is captured by the grace of God in Christ, if I am overwhelmed with his goodness in shedding his blood for me and choosing me and saving me, then I will pray all the more fervently. I will want my life to be all the more pure and holy, all the more consecrated to him. And I will pour out my heart to him, anchored in that living hope that we have in Christ. Lord God, thank you that the return is near. Lord, please make us very aware of our need to remember that and our need for holiness and the necessity of prayer. Lord, Lord, give us a holy expectancy that we would love Christ's appearing, that we would wake up and realize salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. Lord, make us ready because we know you are coming at an hour that we don't expect. Fix our hope on you. In Christ's name, amen. January 25th, Mike Shira, first service.